This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here today. Before we get started, I wanted to note that you can go to theoryofchange.show to get new episodes and subscribe on either Patreon or Substack. And I appreciate everybody who is doing that. We have both paid and unpaid subscriptions. And obviously, I will extend my gratitude to those who are paid subscribers. You're making this possible. Thank you very much. And then if you'd like this show, I encourage you to go to flux.community where you can get more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, society, and technology. And we are trying to do something different with the corporate media and highlight topics and voices that are not heard from on the usual cable news outlets. So I encourage everybody to go and check that out. Thank you very much. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get into today's program. For thousands of years, humans have been buying and selling sex. The ancient Sumerians in 2400 BCE included female and male prostitutes on a list of known professions. So the term, the oldest profession, certainly has something to it. And yet, despite the fact that sex economies have existed for far longer than most civilizations, many people seem uncomfortable with discussing the important roles that sex workers play in our society, economy, and even our politics. In 49 of the 50 states, prostitution is illegal, and far-right Republicans in many states are talking about their desire to ban birth control and pornography. So, despite our discomfort with this subject, it is essential, and it remains even more essential given the increasing interest in sex that some people are talking about in regards to heterosexual disenchantment with each other. So there's there's a, a lot to discuss here for that. And I'm happy to be joined by somebody who knows a lot about this subject. Her name is Caitlin Bailey, and she is the executive director of Old Pros, which is an organization that does both research and advocacy for sex workers. Thanks for being here, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, so there's a, a lot of ground here to cover. And I think, as I said in the intro, I think a lot of people may not be familiar with a lot of the topics that we're going to be talking about here today. And, and I should mention that this episode is going to be the first of a few that are going to be talking about sex work. But I wanted to have you come on as our expert to get it started. So how about let's maybe define some terms here first. Sure. So sex work, what does that mean, that term? So sex work is a broad umbrella term that encompasses all erotic labor exchanges. So this is a phrase that was coined by Carol Lee in the 1970s to push back against prohibitionist feminists at the time who were using the phrase prostituted woman. But sex work refers to full service sex work or sort of classic prostitution. It also includes legal forms of sex work like stripping or pornography, domination, foot fetish work. And because we're trying to build a big tent, I would like to include Hooters waitresses and other people who use erotic labor as a part of their job. Yeah, okay. And there are some other terms as well, like a lot of sex work jobs involve kind of a murky legal status in many sure. jurisdictions. Well, um, the thing that unites all sex workers, whether their work is directly criminalized or not, is the stigma against sex work. 
So Mm -hmm. there are perfectly legal strippers or legally registered sex workers in brothels in Nevada that have their children taken away from them or lose job status or are kicked out of school or housing because their employer or landlord or significant other found out about their involvement um, in, in some form of sex work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you use the word decriminalization there. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe define that, in, 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 especially in regards to some of the other terms. Sure. There are only four models for policing prostitution. So there's criminalization, right, which criminalizes both the buying and selling of sex work. The way that this plays out is that mostly providers are criminalized, but there's also legalization or regula- regulation. So this is the model that you see in Nevada or Amsterdam, where some forms of prostitution are legal, but you have to work in a registered brothel. And this is sort of a a model that um, tries to contain and control sex workers and really diminishes the negotiating power of sex workers and creates a two-tiered system where the overwhelming majority of people who are doing this work outside of the registered brothels have no legal protection at all. There's also end-demand. Maine actually became the first state in the U.S. to pass this law, but it originated in Norway. Uh, This is sometimes it's referred to as the the Nordic model, the Swedish model. um, Canada has experimented with these laws. But the theory is that in order to reduce the demand for the oldest profession, they try to criminalize the clients or buyers uh, or third party folks. But of course, it's impossible to surveil clients without surveilling sex workers. And because of the stigma associated with sex work, this leads to people being evicted, a temporary reduction in, in demand, which sends people into a more economic, desperate position that they were in. And desperate people do desperate things. So everywhere that the end demand model has been implemented, violence against sex workers goes up. It undermines our ability to screen our clients or to self-advocate. But what sex workers all over the world have been asking for for decades is decriminalization, where neither the buying, selling, or facilitating um, sexual services is criminalized. And this allows people to report crimes committed against us and move throughout the communities that we're already a part of. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that you can just be like a freelance worker and in charge of your own schedule. That's kind of the way basically a lot of people are doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Of course. Because they don't like other arrangements to be working for somebody else. Yeah, I think it's important to to remember that sex work is work, but it is also sex. So any kind of surveillance or criminalization or effort to regulate the consensual adult choices uh, that are being made in a very private space is going to erode all of our all of our freedoms. There's no way to surveil sex workers without surveilling, well, everyone. Mm hmm. Yeah. And and it's interesting because these same types of models of regulation, they exist with regard to hallucinogenic drugs. And Mm -hmm. but it's interesting that people seem to be more open to the idea of decriminalizing crack, which can literally destroy your body and brain. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the idea of decriminalizing or legalizing sex work is just somehow offensive. What, what, what do you think is the, well, the dichotomy from a, here? From a policy perspective, I think it's really important to remember that drugs are 
a substance that can be regulated, but sex workers are service providers. We are people, we are neighbors and mothers, and we have other jobs. So it's not actually possible to contain and control us in red light districts or exclusively in registered uh, brothels. Sex workers are and have always been everywhere. So efforts to contain and control us end up creating a criminalized class, and that reduces our ability to self-advocate for safety and health. And this is the kind of thing that leads to rapes and, and also murders that we're not able to report or get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and a lot of it also does pertain to the fact that like, a lot of this does come out of both misogyny and also anti-LGBTQ attitudes as well, because historically, basically acknowledging that there are people out there who are doing this in affront to some people, um, that it should not exist and should not be known to exist. Sure. I do think that sex work in general is an existential threat to the patriarchy. It's very hard to have a patriarchy if you don't know who the dads are. And I will say that the long history of criminalizing sex work is very much grounded in misogyny and also homophobia. I'll give you an example of the the CANS laws in Louisiana. Um, CANS stands for Crime Against Nature. And this was a statute that was originally written in the 1800s to target the gay hustler scene in New Orleans, but it was a Louisiana law that made talking about oral or anal sex a federal crime. And so when the tough on crime, the Reagan administration came through, the police officers started using that statute to arrest Black women and trans women and charging them with these CANS laws. In addition, they forced them to register as sex offenders. And this really all came to a head in 2005 during Hurricane Katrina, when thousands of Black women were turned away from shelters for being registered sex offenders, when really all they were guilty of was simple prostitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and w- only with adults. Like, yes, uh, of course. Be clear with that. And, yeah, but it's sex. That's right. Yeah, and well, it, it's also like okay. So you, the the idea of patriarchy here, like mm-hmm. it's one of the I guess in in some of your advocacy. I mean, do, have you seen kind of a stigma applied both from men but also from women against sex workers like what's who's who's doing this in your view yeah i mean the criminalization of sex work is really a a very old coalition between the religious right and the the righteous left there's a long and dark history of progressive dating back to the progressive era of criminalizing vice. And a lot of this was grounded in white supremacy. If you look at the Mann Act or the white slave law that was passed in 1910, this is really something that is coming from feminists who are sort of demanding this protection against what would be sort of a a trafficking panic from the the late early, uh, early 1900s. And so I think it's really important to understand that although prostitution has become um, a symbol of violence against women, the decriminalization of sex work is the only policy that actually reduces violence against women. So when Carol Lee coined the phrase sex work in the 1970s, she was really pushing back against people who considered themselves feminists that nevertheless found themselves advocating for more police to arrest vulnerable women. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's also, I mean, when we, we've, we were talking about this topic earlier, I think you, you had said something like that, that some sort of anti-sex work feminists, they kind of think it's like that sex workers are, have hacked the system, that they're cheating in a way. Sure. Um, I mean, I certainly can imagine, especially before women had a lot of other job opportunities, that brothels and bars were a real source of anxiety within the household, right? When women don't have property rights and their husbands are spending their paycheck that is supposed to go to the mortgage or to feed their families at a local tavern, this is the energy that propelled us towards prohibition. But we know what prohibition does to markets. It doesn't make them safer. And I would implore folks that consider themselves to be feminists to remember that you cannot help people you are hunting and that the oldest profession is not a problem that we can arrest our way out of. We can talk about ways of raising the negotiating power of victims, of increasing uh, folks' ability to do other work, but we can't send SWAT teams into massage parlors with legally licensed masseurs who are giving their clients sexual services and call that a service to the community that we're arresting and raiding. I, I do think it's important for listeners to understand, especially as we we are absolutely on the ascent of another moral sex panic that is targeting the queer community, the trans community, and also sex work, pornography, and and consensual sex work. And so when our government says that they're engaged in anti-trafficking work, we like to envision a good guy with a gun rescuing a victim from a violent situation. But what in fact is happening is that law enforcement officers are engaging in sexual services with folks and then arresting those people for engaging in those acts. This is not a situation where the good guys are going after the bad guys and people end up better off for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also that with a lot of these, that as you were saying, that if you're you're trying to protect people who may be coerced into this, because, and there are some studies that have indicated that, legalization or decriminalization can in some jurisdictions has increased trafficking to some degree, but there are conflicting studies with that. No, the Um, the studies have shown that there's an increase in sex worker advertising when the, when legal penalties are removed, which makes all of the sense. So if you look at the case of Rhode Island, which decriminalized indoor sex mm -hmm. work between 2003 and 2009, you absolutely saw an explosion of sex worker advertising and people traveling to Rhode Island in order to Mm -hmm. engage in decriminalization criminalized sex work. You also saw a reduction of gonorrhea rates by 40% and a reduction in reported rapes by 30% and an overall reduction in violence against women. So the results were actually very positive. You didn't see an increase in violence. You didn't see an increase in exploitation. You did see an increase in prostitution. Now, I think that those results would you know, it wouldn't look like that if the entire region was decriminalized. But when you have an isolated area where this is the only place that you can go to engage in this work without the fear of arrest, of course, you're going to see an increase. But New Zealand decriminalized prostitution in 2003. And although there was a temporary uptick in advertising, the markets really leveled out. And it's mostly you've seen a reduction in STIs and violence against women and an increase in sex workers who feel comfortable reporting crimes committed against them. 
but you haven't mm-hmm. seen a huge uptick in prostitution overall because the entire country decriminalized. It wasn't con- concentrated in one city or area. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I just meant it in the sense that, that for instance, with drugs, marijuana legalization, that in, in California, when, when we in, decriminalized marijuana out here, it, it led to an increase both in the legal sale of marijuana, but also the illegal sale of marijuana in some, in some ways. And so, sure. and, and like, and, but it's important. I think the Rhode Island ex- experiment, if you will, it, it shows that uh, you, you really need to stick to a policy for a while mm-hmm. because there are effects that may exist in the short term, but are going to go away once the pressure is off or something like that. And but you mentioned like the the, the violence against women. So like mm-hmm. I, I remember reading about the the rape rates in the various counties in Nevada where mm-hmm. prostitution is legal. And there's one of them, Elko County, where there are no rapes. <laughs> I think there were literally no rapes in that in that in the years that they were looking at. I think some context here is really important because you're only allowed to have a legally licensed brothel in a county with less than 700,000 people in it. So there's no way to Mm -hmm. work legally in Vegas or Reno where the highest demand is. And so the overwhelming majority of sex work that's happening in Nevada is happening outside of these legally licensed brothels. And these brothels came into existence in the 1970s and were very much a compromise sort of between the mafia and local law enforcement. And these brothels are beloved in the communities that they're in. It's a huge source of tax revenue. There are a lot of counties in Nevada that wouldn't have um, adequate health care service, but for the revenue that these brothels provide. But it's not a model that we want to replicate nationally because it really doesn't increase the negotiating power of the people who work there. In order to work as a legally licensed prostitute in Nevada, you have to register with the local sheriff's department. This becomes a subpoenable fact about you for the rest of your life. You can imagine how this plays out in child custody cases. You have to be hired and work at one of a handful of of legally licensed brothels. You're working 12 or 24 hour shifts. And because you are a legally licensed prostitute, you don't actually have the same freedom of movement that any other citizen of that uh, county would have. You have to remain on the premises of the brothels or face um, a fine. You can't just go to a bar or go to the movies because all of these laws are about restricting, containing, and controlling sex workers. And, yeah. Right. Well, and so, okay. But I, I actually only meant it to talk about it in the context of violence. Oh, sure. That, so, yes. Uh, yeah. So that basically there people, especially like people like Jordan Peterson talk about sexually frustrated men and how it's just mm-hmm. plague on society and only they are concerned about it. And no one wants to give an outlet to these men who can't get a date or whatever. And yet then they also go adamantly against sex work. And the facts are pretty clear that when you have some form of legalized Mm -hmm. uh, prostitution, that it does protect the rest of the women, and also the sex workers themselves. There was a fascinating comparative study that was done. Scott Stern, I believe, was the lead researcher comparing the impact that Uh, Craigslist erotic services had on the cities when it became available. So Craigslist erotic services, if you don't remember, was um, a place on Craigslist where people could advertise uh, their interest in engaging in either casual or paid 
sexual encounters, and it became available in different cities at different times. And what they found is that everywhere that Craigslist erotic services became available, the female homicide rate dropped on average 17%. We already talked about what happened in Rhode Island when indoor sex work was decriminalized. You saw a reduction in rapes by 30%. These results have been replicated in places like Amsterdam, or as you mentioned, in Nevada, there's a clear correlation between access to professional sex workers, and a reduction in gender-based violence. I think this has two causes. I think that the presence of sex work allows women to escape abusive relationships. And I think there is something to that point, as much as I loathe ceding any ground to Jordan Peterson, that there is something about sex workers that turns the temperature down on on male violence. And this goes back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, when Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, sent a harlot to spend seven days, or excuse me, six days and seven nights with a warrior, teaching him how to bathe and have table manners. And yes, who was experiencing intimate sexual moments with him, which helped ease his transition from a violent theater of war back into civilization. And mm-hmm. this is something that like militaries have known about for thousands and thousands of years. The relationship between sex workers and soldiers is very long. But I, I also think that the military is responsible for some of the most egregious human rights violations when it comes to sex workers. There's the comfort women that we know about in Japan. Armies have done similar things. And the horror story that you you think about of like a woman and a, a line of men, but it's only during times of war that you that you see that that kind of thing play out. But also here in the United States in 1917, when the U.S. got involved in World War One, we passed something called the American plan. And our effort to reduce STIs, we shuttered all of the brothels that had been legally operating in cities across the country. And we also deputized local law enforcement to arrest women in the vicinity of military bases who were suspected of promiscuity, not just prostitution, but promiscuity. And this led to a very dark chapter in our history of arresting women for being in public and making the wrong kind of eye contact with a cop. So I think it's really important for folks to remember that the criminalization of sex work always undermines women's ability to move freely in public space and that efforts to contain and control us rather than reduce the STI rates. For example, when they shuttered the brothels in Alaska, STIs went up 300%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and so part of these efforts to kind of crack down on things are religious derived as well. And and we've certainly seen a lot of that. And I guess right now, lately, the Christian right has been focused on trying to ban abortion, but they made very clear that they have an agenda of items and banning birth control is on the list and rolling back same-sex marriage is on the list. Some of them are openly talking about banning pornography entirely. One of the ways that they have attacked porn is to is to be putting in age verification laws. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So Pornhub, for example, has stopped operating in, I believe, three states. I know it's Virginia. I believe it 
is Louisiana, and I'm, I'm not sure what the third state is, but age verification laws would force users, right, to upload identifying information, right, their ID, in order to watch pornography. Now, legal porn performers, of course, are already subjected to a ton of regulation. They have to sign all kinds of consent forms. They have to upload their own IDs. But the fear here is that users are effectively putting themselves on a stigmatized list. And so the, the ramifications of that, it's just, it's, it's too much. And so Pornhub, one of the largest sources of pornography, said that they, they can't comply with that law. And so they are not making their sites available in those states. There's one case, I believe, of a woman in Louisiana whose husband is in, is in the army. And so pornography is a big part of their relationship, especially when he's overseas. And I believe that she's currently suing, and I wish her luck in her case to get access to pornography. There's one more point I want to make, which I think is really important for folks to understand the history between the criminalization or censorship of obscenity and the criminalization um, and censorship of information about birth control and abortion. This dates back to the Comstock laws of the 1870s. And he was on a crusade uh, to remove pornography or smut from public space. But in doing so, criminalized information about birth control and sort of famously went on to arrest Margaret Sanger for obscenity when she was simply trying to share information about how to prevent um, unintended pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and we're seeing that now uh, repeat in the state of Florida, where now they have expanded their don't talk about gender identity or any sort of sexual education stuff all the way through high school. And now people can be fired for having a picture of their spouse or trying to tell children about condoms or how to buy menstrual products. No, it, it, it is, it should be alarming. I think the, the long history and the, you know, tenacity of conflating the existence of queer people with obscenity. And so I know a lot of well-meaning liberal moms that have a discomfort with pornography and stand behind a lot of these laws that are already being used to persecute LGBTQ plus folks and make it harder for not just young people, but all people to access information about their own bodies. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a, it's a point worth exploring here because the idea of publicly acknowledging that that sex exists <laughs> right or or even but but just like that that's kind of the base level but but even further is that this idea that there are some people who do not agree with a conventional viewpoint about sex and sexual relationships that yeah. that really is kind of the root of the of the conflict here, I think, especially for the for a lot of these fundamentalist religious people that the idea that there could be a woman who says, I don't care if I have sex with 10 people in a week, it doesn't bother me, I don't sure. think there's anything wrong with it. And I'm going to do that for my job. Or there's somebody who says, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go and find other men and, and try to have help them fulfill needs that they can't get in their in their regular lives that that cannot exist it's an affront right and it's i think a big part of my job is reminding folks that we 
already live in a society where people are having all kinds of sex all around you. Whether you live in a suburban home or an apartment, people are engaging in sex that might make you uncomfortable already. And there's no amount of criminalization or censorship or prohibition that's going to change that. But similar to abortion, we cannot legislate this away, but we can make it less safe. And that's exactly what criminalization and censorship does. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, and I mean, let's delve into it a little bit further. Like, why do you think they're so like disproportionately concerned about this compared to, I mean, like you, you talk, talk about as drugs versus as a substance that could be regulated, but it's, it's more than that. It's about that other people have an agency Mm -hmm. that you don't approve of. I think we should get really specific here because the overwhelming majority of laws targeting prostitution are directed at women. People of all genders have always engaged in this work and a lot of the same language and rhetoric and statutes that have been applied to criminalize prostitution are used to target the queer community. But this has always been about controlling women. And I think that this can, this really dates back to the Catholic church, which codified uh, the Madonna whore complex and sort of waged war on fertility deities and priestess prostitutes and powerful women that did not subject themselves to the normal standard of fidelity or this obsession with chastity. I think that informs our obsession with sex ed and contraception and also prostitution. And my basic Mm -hmm. argument and the point that I make on the Oldest Profession podcast over and over again is that whorephobia is the foundation of misogyny. Mm. Yeah. Now you mentioned the idea of of Madonna whore dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Let's, for people who haven't heard that term, let's sure. So dating back to one of the oldest deities that we have written records about, Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, and the myth around her is that she was born a virgin every morning and she went to bed a whore every night. And priestess prostitutes were an important part of the temples that held space for her. And this is at a time when um, temples were really the organizing force of the ancient world. They weren't just places of worship, but they were also uh, places where um, important decisions were made. They were the keeper of important knowledge, especially around fertility. Uh, they were also um, the only bank uh, in town. But as the, the, the these temples, polytheism transitions into the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire falls and is replaced by the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church sort of separates that ancient deity and turns her into the two Marys, right? The, the virgin mother and the repentant whore. And does a lot to undermine uh, Mary Magdalene, who there's uh, no evidence to suggest that she ever engaged in the oldest profession, but you know, Pope uh, Gregory um, called her a sinful woman uh, from the pulpit um, in 591 and really locked into this idea that she was a sinful woman. And that justified over a thousand years of denigrating her contributions, her significant contributions to the Christian church. And so this institution that was ostensibly built on the teachings of Jesus, right, and love and forgiveness 
became about persecuting people who are engaging in these these older rites. And so we have a long history of the the Inquisition targeting courtesans or known sex workers for witchcraft and conflating sexual fidelity, especially amongst women, with holiness or, or godliness, which is not something that like Jesus, the historic figure, was especially concerned about. Yeah, well, he's was documented repeatedly in the in yes. the New Testament to have been regularly right. with and befriending. <clears throat> Much more comfortable with sex workers than he was with tax collectors, for example. Well, actually, no, he was friends with the tax collectors as well. Oh, um, yes. So, but 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 getting biblical with this, mm -hmm. like there is another figure even older than Mary, the mm -hmm. two Marys that was like she was kind of in a large part i feel like one of the the very first canceled literary figures and that was asherah mm -hmm. or asherah and she was so the, the the hebrew the ancient hebrews and judaism grew out of of canaanite polytheism mm -hmm. and asherah was the wife of the chief deity and mm -hmm. she was the last remnant of that that was so over time the 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 worshipers of yahweh sort of censored and extirpated all the other deities but mm -hmm. asherah was the last one that survived and she was a fertility goddess mm -hmm. and, and people continue and she's in the bible like yep. that's that's what's interesting is and and it's really like and you see people being killed for worshiping her and yeah. uh, and praying to her and like she was god's wife so why wouldn't right. they pray to her but yeah, like it's, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, it is interesting that the, there may be something to this monotheism and creating a male deity that a, yes. a female deity could not be allowed to exist. Right. And the Catholic church is, has a long and well-documented history of being much more committed to patriarchal control and property accumulation than they are to love and forgiveness or anything that I might associate with Christian values. Mm. Well, and then there's also the Lilith story. Do you yes, of tell course. That one I do. Well? Yeah. So Lilith, uh, the, the story of Lilith coming from the, the Old Testament was Adam's first wife. And so the myth, as I understand it, is that Lilith and Adam were created at the same time and from the same clay. Uh, but um, there was a problem in their relationship. Lilith really wanted to be on top. Uh, during sex. Now, most marriage counselors, of course, would tell you that that wasn't the real problem, but it is what the scripture literally says. Uh, both God and Adam agreed that Lilith wanting to um, enjoy sex with Adam uh, was an existential threat. And so she left. She left the garden of her own volition, started a love affair with some other, some other figures, and was living independently. And this all-knowing, all-powerful God could not get Lilith to come back to the garden. So we see sort of a very early complication to patriarchal control or this all-powerful God. And so God made Adam a, a consolation prize, Eve. So from, from Adam's body, his rib or some other part, depending on which translation you're looking at, who was supposedly smaller and more submissive than the original Lilith. And even she, right, even Eve is blamed for uh, all human suffering from eating from the tree of knowledge. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, and it, and it is, it's really important, I think, to know this history mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I, there is, I think there are a lot of people who 
I mean, there's kind of a paradox that I feel like that the more educated you are on the political right, the more likely you are to support sex workers. Yes. Whereas in a large measure, the more educated you are on the left, the less likely you are to support sex and workers. I think that's really important because I know a lot of otherwise smart, well-meaning people that support laws that inevitably hurt the people that those legislators or advocates are claiming that they're trying to help, right? I think everybody is interested in increasing the negotiating power of victims. We all want to see fewer victims of rape, sexual assault, violence, but efforts to contain and control prostitution or efforts to eradicate the oldest profession inevitably hurt people who are engaging in that work, whether they're doing that by choice, circumstance, or coercion. This really isn't a problem that we can arrest our way out of. For people that may have some resistance to this, that mm -hmm. when you look at, especially people who come from impoverished backgrounds, mm -hmm. that there, there are some jobs that are just, there's only a few jobs that are even possible for them to do because they have no training, they have no network, they have no education. And so you're, you're, you're going to take away something that will help them not be impoverished. That's what you're going to do yeah. to them. I know. And, and, and yeah, sex work has been a reliable survival strategy for millennia. It has been a way of people able to accumulate some kind of capital. I think that sex work has funded more entrepreneurs and artists than all of the grants combined. But it's interesting to me that when prostitution is turned into a symbol of prostitution, when prostitution is turned into a symbol of exploitation, we end up focusing all of our efforts on eradicating or suppressing prostitution, and we ignore huge swaths of exploitation. We do have real slavery and exploited laborers in this country, in our own prison system, in agriculture, in mines. And so there are all kinds of jobs out there where we could really be doing more to reduce violent exploitation, but instead all of those resources are being redirected uh, at mostly adult consensual sex workers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also that I think there's, there's a, the, the right wing has under Trump developed an ability to masquerade as populist in some issues. So like they talk about big tech and talk about regulating these technology companies as if they're not completely in the pocket of all of big business. And they're doing that with regard to this sex trafficking panic that they're that they're pushing that yeah. they want you to focus on this, which in many cases mm -hmm. is just vastly overhyped and exaggerated, doesn't exist to nearly the degree that they're telling you so that you don't talk about the other exploited people and you don't and help workers that are going on strike and you don't sympathize with them. I think that's a really great example. And I, I think that Marriott Hotels is a, a classic example of exactly this phenomenon, right? So Marriott Hotels has engaged in a PR campaign to raise awareness about trafficking, right? And so if you check into a Marriott Hotel, you'll often see something on the door or signs throughout saying, if you see something, say something. But all of the signs of trafficking that they list are just signs of 
sex work, right? They want uh, to discriminate against um, you know, women traveling alone or people who have multiple guests in the room or people who ask for multiple towels or people with acrylic nails. Meanwhile, Marriott Hotels uses third-party companies in order to clean their hotel rooms. So there's absolutely trafficking that's happening at Marriott Hotels, but it's not the consensual adult sex workers who are trying to work in their rooms. It's the cleaning staff whose labor rights have been undermined because they have been farmed out to an ungovernable third party. Yeah, and in many cases are sort of imported illegal immigrants. Correct. Yeah, um, these are, yes, exactly. are not able to advocate for themselves. Correct. Yeah. All right. Well, and now in terms of the empowerment of of sex workers that we have seen, I think one of the biggest trends that's evolved has been uh, OnlyFans. And that has really revolutionized the pornography industry and done so in a way that seems to have overwhelmingly benefited the workers uh, yeah. in against the studios and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Let's can tell us about that. Any time that you are able to directly connect fans to a performer, an artist, or a content creator, that's the that's the best situation, right? As a as a content creator, people giving you money directly cuts out the studios. It cuts out um, potentially exploitative third parties, which I think is one of the reasons why we've seen so much of a reaction to OnlyFans. They are, they've been through the ringer in terms of their ability to accept credit cards or the different regulations that are, are trying to shut them down. But this is absolutely a model that empowers individual performers at the expense of the larger studio system. And the more regulatory efforts there are, the more you concentrate power into the hands of a few. We've seen this in big tech and pornography is no exception. The more of a regulatory burden you place, then the fewer and fewer people are able to, to meet that bar. And so OnlyFans, I think, was revolutionary and it, it, it helped a lot of people fund, again, schools, startups, or just an artistic career or just their life, just the ability to like eat and pay their rent. Yeah. And yeah. we certainly saw that during the pandemic when yes. a lot of performing venues were shut down entirely. Correct. And Yeah, I knew a lot of folks during the pandemic that lost their, their day gig and their night gig at the same time. The theaters were closed and also they weren't able to work at restaurants. And so it, it makes sense that we saw a huge influx in people engaging um, in this work. Unfortunately, because of the reaction, you're also seeing a lot of those same performers who are now being fired from jobs, being denied spots at universities or training for nurses. So the and with the surveillance technology that we have and facial recognition, we have folks that have OnlyFans accounts that are being denied access at the border because they're a known sex worker, even though the sex work that they're engaged in is perfectly legal. So there's a lot of ramifications and this is very much still happening now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess, yeah, given the, I, it's benefited a lot of different people and people have had contact mm -hmm. with it much more than before. And I think it's, it's made people more aware of that, that there are people that they know who are mm -hmm. doing this and, uh, and that also destigmatizes it. And that I think is something that's really important, right? Your listeners probably already know and like a sex worker that lives amongst them just because they're not out about that. I think OnlyFans made that more visible, but sex workers have always been part of every community. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess speaking of that, though, like you have referred to sex workers as we a few mm-hmm. times here. Yes. You want to talk about that a little bit? Like what's your your background with in sure. contact with all this? I mean, I think it's important to say that there there really is no typical story. People have engaged in this work for all kinds of reasons throughout human history. And this work looks different to, to everyone. I started doing full service hourly sex work in 2004, 2005. I used a message board to schedule and screen my clients. And we met at uh, hotels sort of in the golden age where we had cell phones, but not smartphones, no facial recognition technology yet. And then when I moved to New York to pursue stand-up comedy, I started doing sugaring, which is a, a new word for a very old thing, sort of courting individual patrons to support to support my work. So it was not an hourly gig, but more of a, a long-term commitment. But there are as many forms of sex work and as many nuances and shades of gray of this as there are people. What it means to be a sex worker, it's like, what does it mean to be an actress? Like every career is different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, now what about, there is some tension, I feel like also maybe perhaps that for women who might have married up word, as they say. Sure. They don't want to be thought of as a client and, and service provider relationship with their marriage, but, and that makes them uncomfortable with that idea. Sure. I I would say that one of the benefits of being a sex worker, as opposed to a wife, is the getting paid up front and having the purchasing power of being paid a wage or being paid for your services. Every marriage is different. I am married to a relatively high earner, but it's a fundamentally different. Partnership is fundamentally different, I think, than paid companionship. I also want to push back a little bit that, yes, there are many wives out there that consider their their partner or their husband seeing a sex worker as, as cheating. But there are also wives out there that, you know, think about sex workers as a, a paid service that their husband sometimes engages in, right? Whether their wife is suffering from a chronic illness or the spark has left the marriage I personally don't believe that one person has the right to sort of take sex away from another another person. And I think that marriage can be complicated. It can be a relationship. It's an economic relationship. It's a community or companionship, raising children. So I, I don't know if this like sex workers versus wives is as clear cut as, as you would like to suggest. There are a lot of married sex workers and there are a lot of wives who support that, that see sex workers or also support their partner seeking sexual services elsewhere because paid companionship is not a threat to the marriage or union or partnership in the same way that having an emotionally messy extramarital affair might be. Mm-hmm. I did want to get into the the prostitute with a heart of gold. Sure, idea. yeah. Because I really hate that people in Hollywood discount that. Yeah, I mean, sex workers have been like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, like there's a reason that that exists. Yeah, because, because we're often the last line real. of defense. Yeah, for <laughs> vulnerable people, right? Brothels were also mm-hmm. places where nursing happened, right? It's where people fleeing domestic violence situations went, you know, this women helping other women and sex workers helping folks that are in trouble. It's a 
story you hear over and over again. This is why Madams settled the West. Yeah, when yeah. It, it was also the only way for a lot of men to even have any sort of conversation about feelings yes. or psychology. And yeah. even like they may not have even known about those yeah. terms. And even now, right, right, don't right. know you could go to a therapist. Yeah. Well, okay, now what about people who might say that, I mean, and there have been some studies that indicate that excessive use of porn can be damaging for individuals. I mean, there um, were studies in the Victorian era that said that it lead it led to blindness and cancer, but you know, that was a, a different yeah, well, panic. Well, that's what, yeah, no, like I want you to talk about that though. Sure. That, you know, people who they're like, I mean, do you think that there, that people should realize there's a, a healthy amount of using anything? And, I think um, that if we're going to crack and, down and on just, anything, yeah. sorry. No, I, I'll go ahead. No, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm continuously frustrated by this impulse that we have as a society to look around at like the very real labor exploitation, right? The very real economic disparity, the very real suffering uh, that so many people um, are, are surviving um, or many are not and decide to focus our attention on people enjoying themselves by themselves. People have been engaging in solo sex for as long as, uh, I mean, this predates us as a species. Anyone who's visited a zoo can tell you that this is a thing that, that creatures engage in. And so this impulse to pathologize something that is so natural and so ubiquitous feels like it's a projection and reflects our inability or unwillingness to address uh, very real problems. Mm -hmm. So you'd say that it's people who may have issues with excessive porn use probably also have issues in other ways. Sure. And you I shouldn't mean, focus just on that. People can get addicted to anything, reality television, sugar, even drugs. And I don't think that we have a, a good track record of trying to criminalize or suppress that leading to good outcomes. We didn't solve drug addiction by criminalizing drugs. We're not going to solve what you might call porn addiction or somebody wanting to change their relationship with pornography or masturbation by trying to eliminate smut from public spaces. Yeah, and especially because plenty of people have no problem with how they use it in right. their own lives. Yes, um, and so people that people can go on their own journey and decide. Everyone gets to decide what their boundaries are around erotic content or participating in masturbation or sex. But these are very personal choices, and so I think that it's important for us to recognize this pattern again of like moral panic or pathologizing something that can be innocuous and natural and dare I suggest helpful actually. Yeah. Well, and, and there have been studies that show that like porn has been helpful for a lot of people who, because as you said, like in marriage situation yeah. for absence or physical or emotional trauma on the part of their partner uh, yeah. that they couldn't survive in that marriage if it wasn't yes. for that. So, all right. Well, yeah. So where, what's kind of the final takeaway you would have people that we haven't maybe talked about? I think it's important for folks to recognize across the political and ideological spectrum, we've been really wrong about the oldest profession for a really long time. I think it's important at this moment in history when we're dealing with multiple cascading crises to 
listen to sex workers. There is nobody who's more motivated to reduce violence and exploitation within the sex trade than sex workers themselves. And we have a lot of good ideas, but the first thing that we have to do is stop the arrests. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great, uh, great message for sure. All right. Well, so we've been talking today with Caitlin Bailey and she is the executive director of Old Pros. And you're also on Twitter at Caitlin Bailey. That's K-A-Y-T-L-I-N-B-A-I-L-E-Y for those who are listening. Yeah, I'd also encourage if you're interested in this topic, we send out a newsletter of sex worker rights related news every Friday. And you can sign up for that at oldprosonline.org. And you can also follow us across social media platforms at oldprosonline. Okay. All right. Well, I encourage everybody to do that. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank well, you again so much for having me, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I okay. hope that this is a conversation that your listeners enjoy and I hope they learn a lot. All right. So that is the show for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us and I encourage everybody to go to theoryofchange.show where you can get full access to all of the previous episodes and future ones. And you can subscribe on Substack or Patreon. We have free and paid subscriptions available. And I thank everybody who is a paid subscriber very much. You have the complete access to all the transcripts and audio and video. Some of those things are not available to the unpaid members. So I do appreciate everybody who supports us that way. And then also I would encourage everybody to go to flux.community. This show is part of the flux network. So please do check that out. We've got lots more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society. And if you've got a podcast or other show like that, or you're interested in doing writing, please do reach out to us. We are interested in expanding our network and the number of people that we work with as well. So I encourage everybody to reach out if you are so inclined. But that's it for today. I appreciate everybody for being here. I'll see you next time.